could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. I never go home, those, those, those boys. Good morning and welcome to Second Captain Sunday. Oh, Mike David here with Murph and Ken. Hi, guys. Hi, Owen. How are you? Hello there, Owen. Ah, thanks so much for all the lovely messages we've had since last week's show. We had the great pleasure of chatting to the artist Dorothy Cross about her work, her swimming, and just her incredibly uplifting attitude to life. In case you missed it, one of our listeners was so charmed by the interview, or by the interviewee, more to the point, that he offered Dorothy his heart, Murph, literally. She's been, yeah, she's been trying and failing to borrow a human heart for a project she's working on. A gentleman Isn't named, this a sacrifice too far, though? <laughs> it could be. A gentleman named Kevin Devitt from Westport got on to say that he had her... So she's faced all this, she calls a fear and bureaucracy around getting a heart. She said, other organs are fine, you can borrow them, no problem, from various institutions. The heart has a, a certain cachet about it. Mm-hmm. People get, get very attached to the, to the old heart. So she struggled to get her hands on one. Kevin Devitt from Westport got on to say he had a heart transplant last year, and if they'd ah. allowed him to keep his old heart... He would have handed it straight to Dorothy. So not his current okay, heart, but that's still good. good gun. That's what I call committing to a radio interview. Mm, but not over committing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not saying you necessarily have to offer up one of your vital organs if you tweet us today at Second Captains, by the way. But we will certainly look more kindly on your message if you do that. Ken, a man who arguably doesn't possess such an uplifting attitude to life is Martin Shkreli, the former pharmaceutical CEO, commonly labelled the most hated man in America after he, a a country, don't forget, that Donald Trump lives in and is in charge of at the moment, after he jacked up the prices of vital drugs by as much as 5,000% a while back. He's been back in the news this week. Well, he's going to be on trial, Owen, not not for anything to do with drug prices, but to do with wire and securities fraud. Um, But in order for him to be on trial, there has to be a jury and the jury selection process in the case of Martin Shkreli was unusually complicated. 200 potential jurors are excused from the trial uh, because you have to be willing to give the guy a fair crack of a whip. Ideally, you shouldn't know anything about him. (laughs) Uh, But in, in Martin Shkreli's case, juror number one, I'm aware of the defendant and I hate him. I think he's a greedy little man. Uh, so they say, you know, juror number one is excused. Juror number 18, well, both of my parents are on prescriptions that have gone up over the past few months, so much they can't afford their drugs. Um, so they're excused as well. It goes on and on. He's the most hated man in America, says juror number 47. In my opinion, he equates with Bernie Madoff with the drugs for pregnant women going from $15 to 750 My parents are in their 80s. My mother was telling me yesterday how my father's cancer drug is 9000 a month. Uh, can you be fair, they say? I would find that difficult. You are excused. <laughs> when I walked in here today, says juror number 52, I looked at him and in my head that's a snake not knowing who he was I just walked in and looked right at him and that's a snake Uh, so we will excuse juror number 52 Um, it goes on and on and on you have negative feelings very negative feelings Uh, you'd have to convince me he was innocent rather than guilty says juror number 77 it seems like most of them also yeah it seems like most of them are talking about the drug price hikes. I think yes. the, the judge kept kept cutting in and saying, it's nothing to do with that. This is a totally different case. But yeah. they were they were stuck on that, certainly. Juror number 10, the only thing I'd be impartial about is what prison this guy goes to. <laughs> so, um, so eventually, I suppose they were able to cobble together a jury of people who were prepared to pretend they didn't know Martin Shkreli. That's, the, like, that, like, that's real hatred. Yeah. I mean, if you're able to bottle that up and it's say... It's cold and crafty. Yeah, exactly. It's a, a calculated hatred, which is you know, probably a bit more effective in this particular case. So, yeah, it seems as though at least there's been uh, some bad karma for him there. Our guest this morning was described recently as dangerously talented by the great American actor Brian Cranston. He was simply dangerous in the role that propelled him to fame as Nidge in Love-Hate. He's one of Ireland's very finest actors, now making a name for himself in Hollywood, Tom Von Lawler. 
is on the way today. Of course, the main reason to have these wonderful people on the show is to examine their sporting pedigree so we can finally establish just who is Ireland's greatest non-sports person, sports person of 2017. The latest standings, please, Kieran. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Yes, on after last week, we have a new leader, artist Dorothy Cross, five-time national swimming champion, a woman who very nearly represented Ireland in the same pool in which Mark Spitz won seven Olympic golds in 1972. She's out in front on 88 points, followed closely by Nicky Byrne and Pat the Pugilist Short. Does Tom Von Lawler pack the requisite punch to blast his way into that top three? We're about to find out. If you're on Twitter, you can get us at Second Captain's email, secondcaptains at rt.ie. Tom Von Lawler is ready to go. This is Second Captain Sunday. was Louisville Terrace apart by Joy Division on Second Captain Sunday this morning. By the time our guest today had finished terrorising television audiences with his portrayal of Nidge and Love Hate, more than one million people were tuning in to discover the fate of the baddest bad guy ever to hit Irish TV screens. Since then, his career has gone through the roof and we're super excited about having him on the show today. Joining us from Wogan House in London, Tom Vaughan Lawler. Welcome to Second Captain Sunday. Thanks for having me. Now, I hope you're familiar with the side of the show, Tom, because it's very much like TMZ for radio. We need to get a sensationalist <laughs> headline straight away. So can you confirm or deny the rumour that you're acting in the new Avengers movie, Avengers Infinity War, please? Well, it, it, it's, I, I am, but it's like I, I'm, I'm one of those <gasps> ones where you go, you realise that if you, fin- you go into a sentence to say something about it and you hope you have a job at the end of the sentence. <laughs> you're like, it's like you sign so many things, sign so many documents and waivers and all kinds of stuff and people ask you about it and you've got to give the kind of generic and boring, I can't really talk too much about it. But, but, but I, I am doing it okay. and it's, um, it's, it's, it's really amazing and amazing thing to be part of. That's interesting. I mean, why do they... Why is that? I mean, if if, if you're going to be in the movie, why is there a delay between them saying, yeah, you're in the movie, and then you being able to say, yeah, I'm in this movie? I don't know. I think that... I think everything is just so regimented and, and they're so... They are so disciplined as a company with information that goes in and goes out. And I suppose because with social media, there's so much potential for leaks to happen. They just... They want to understandably micromanage things and make sure it goes out when they're ready and i suppose they you know they didn't know me so when i went over they met me they were meeting me for the first time so that you know i think they do like background checks to make sure you're not a white supremacist you know so they're just (laughs) going to go you know we're not hiring someone who has got some kind of massive you know strange baggage but you know they, they so i suppose it's just them going okay who and then as as the job moves on, then they go, okay, we can let information out. And, yeah. and they, I suppose they, they're just very careful with what, about information, really. This all came to light recently. There's a picture of Benedict Cumberbatch, Murphy. I don't know if you saw this one. I did. Who definitely is in the movie, very much confirmed to be in the movie. And he was prone <laughs> on the ground being roared at by a menacing figure in a CGI suit who looked yeah. suspiciously like uh, beloved Irish actor Tom Von Lawler there so we well, thank you for I'd, confirming that Tom yeah I had friends sending me that going look at that mugging for Ireland look at that face pulling <laughs> you know it's like yeah this is great work um, I, I know you're not going to be able to talk about sort of the size or the exact nature of your role but I'm sure you can talk to us about just how much money you're going to be able to make on the Comic Con <laughs> scene by I signing know, all yeah. of these uh, 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 listen 
Absolutely, just retire after this job, just going around in my motion capture suit, signing autographs sort of up and down the country. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, who knows? We should just explain this to people who aren't too familiar with it, right? So this is a movie that's part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the highest grossing movie franchise of all time. I've got some recent figures here in front of me. These are from the U- US domestic box office last year. The, up until last year, the Marvel movies have grossed four billion nine hundred and thirty-two million three hundred and twenty-one thousand and $595, leaving the Harry Potter movies trailing in their wake on a frankly pitiful $2,625,840,000. In fact, the Marvel movies have made more money than Harry Potter and James Bond combined. So this is, sounds like the kind of role that might, uh, might change your life somewhat, Tom. Well, you know, the, this, the thing about being an actor, like you, you learn very quickly that there's no, the minute you start thinking that, it, it just, it, it doesn't really, really work like that, mm. you know, and you've got to, uh, I think anytime you start to think you've in any way arrived, you need to start asking yourself questions about your art and about your, what, what you perceive yourself to be and, and, and what you think you deserve or what you don't deserve and uh, all that kind of stuff is by the by, you just got to, again, it's a bit of a boring answer, but you've got to just focus on your work and your job and, and, and let all the things take care of itself, you know. There's obviously serious physical fitness required for being in a superhero movie. Not a problem for Tom here because your sporting achievements, Tom, are so vast. I'm going to dip into one of them already. We've got enough to say for later on. It's the 2007 Dublin Marathon in which oh, yeah. Yeah, you ran, you ran your one and only marathon that, that day. I, 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 here's the, sto- the, the story is this. I, I'd never run a marathon before and I, I, t- two weeks, I've been training and training and training and two weeks before I was just, to do the marathon in October my knees started giving me terrible problems and I just started going out with my then girlfriend my now wife and she was like wow you're running this marathon and she's she's in English and I, and I was like yeah I'm going across and and the, the, the marathon finished on her my wife's name is Claire mm-hmm. and it finished just off Claire Street and I was like oh wow this is an amazing coincidence so I I, I I was in terrible pain. I thought no I've got I've got to run it just to impress <laughs> her you know she, she, so so I ran it and I, I, I had stopped training and I'd only run up to about 15 miles, but I ran, I ran it in three hours and six minutes. And the reason I ran it that, which is pretty fast, and the reason it's I ran it that fast, fast was, yeah, but I ran it out of, t- it was in total, out of total fear of like my knees giving out. And so I ran up with all the kind of running, running clubs at the front and was kind of, you know, running, running, running and just kind of stay, staying with them just out of fear that my knees would give out. <laughs> but you know, I didn't know about, they give, you know, there's all the stages, the water stages. And, the, and then at 21 miles, there's the gel stage. And I was like, do you, rub the gel on you or do you eat the gel? I wasn't really sure. So when I got it, I was looking around to see what other people were doing and they were eating it. So I was like, I think I'll eat it. <laughs> so then I edit. But I then, when I hit the wall, I ran about another three miles laterally, I think in staggering left and right. So I added, so it was about 29 miles I did at the end. But but it was, <laughs> I, 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 everyone goes, what an achievement. I was like, I was just in pain at the end. I was just kind of, I was, I, I was just in total pain. So that was the big, that was the end of my running career, unfortunately. Well, uh, for some context, uh, I can give yeah. you now, Tom, Owen's result from the 2008 <laughs> double. Ah, listen, it's, it's in the same ballpark. Below four hours, we can move on. Uh, Owen finished uh, 2,323rd uh, in ah, a, right. frankly, outrageously bad time of three hours, 45 minutes and 31 seconds, no, which is 1,994 anything. places behind you. So, and 38 no, but, minutes. And, but. I, I think anything under four hours yeah. is go- is really good. And, like, seriously, anything under four hours is really, really good. I, I, the re- awesome. Honest to God, the reason that I ran out of fear 
out of fear for losing my girlfriend and so that's <laughs> that's a good uh, that is good impetus yeah, there's no so point she's my really. wife now so it's great yeah, yeah unless it, you have something at stake it's great exactly yeah and there's no point really running you know once you get under four hours three hours six three what's 40 minutes exactly, odd between exactly exactly <laughs> tom your dad was an actor mm-hmm. what sort of an influence did he have on your career um, huge influence my dad's still an actor and we we grew up in the theatre really and we were shoved into productions where they needed children and we were kind of babysat by in the wings of theatres and we were always around actors and and I mean strangely enough it's because I was kind of witness to the the how tough an actor's life can be especially in the kind of 80s when there's no such thing as you know potentially getting jobs in America through taping auditions or it, it was rare for it so it was mostly theatre work you know and that's hard to raise a family on, on theatre wages so I was very um, aware of how tough a life it can be and so I, I was quite turned off it actually and it took me a long time to be able to say I wanted to be an actor or, or even to say I, I was an actor because I I think it's a, without sounding very earnest or worthy I think it's a really noble calling it's a really noble profession because not just because of it, it it as an art form but also in terms of the choice i know it is your choice but it is a choice to to be in constant uh, insecurity and constantly worry wondering where the next stretch of work is going to come from and and, and funnily enough i was listening to a podcast alec baldwin talking to um talking to dustin hoffman and dustin hoffman who who shared a flat with Gene Hackman and Robert Duval when they were young actors and, and they were knocking around together and, and were unemployed for like 10 years. Mm. And Gene Hackman said to um, Dustin Hoffman, only in the past few years, they got drunk one night, they'd been for dinner, and he said, he said to Dustin Hoffman, he said, do you still worry you might never work again? Kind of dead serious. And I know Anthony Hopkins is talking about it as well, so that's like actors at the very top of the profession. So I think all the all actors fear that, and and it's a it's a strange it's not a boring life, uh, but it can be scary. Was but your, it's a it's a brilliant life. Was your dad encouraging of you to go into that, or did he? As some parents do, I think if they if they work a job that has that instability, they sometimes want their kids just to take the stable. Yeah. Here are the civil service exam papers. <laughs> no, my dad. My dad is like. Both my parents, my mom is very artistic as well, and and both of them just go. You do what makes you happy, and if you have a passion for something, you follow it, no matter what. Well, no matter what the the outcome might be, no matter where it might take you. So, and my dad was always showing us great, my showing me great films, great actors on screen, taking me to theatre to see great performances and great plays. So, uh, you know, I, I was always kind of it was always in our house. He was always showing me great actors on screen and going, look at this and watch that and similarly bring to theatre and, and, and exposing me to this to great plays and even plays I didn't really understand what they were about. On some level, level they were filtering in and I think that's important for young people. I, I think that's why being an actor is a is an amazing privilege too. I, I think, again, with it, 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 it brings you closer to an understanding of the world, I think, or closer to an understanding of, of humanity, hopefully. And that's why I love I love it because working with great writers and 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 the challenging questions and going to the theatre and being challenged by great ideas and being tested and 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 engaging on a on a deep level I, I think that's why being actor is is really exciting. Was that something that dawned on you 
when you were being brought to these great plays or great movies as a kid or as a teenager? Because by what you say there, it sounds like you might have been a bit reluctant. You saw the insecurities attached to, the, to this job. Was there a moment when you thought, wow, this theatre is powerful, acting is powerful, this is what I want to do? No, I I, I loved it in, in isolation um, as a kind of a separate thing and something my dad did. Um, but I, I never wanted it for myself, mainly because of, of the... the what I could see with my dad and with all his peers, mm-hmm. even you know, successful working actors, how tough it was and how hard it was, is to raise a family, especially when you're working predominantly in theatre. And that's the strange thing. They, you know, that that actors, there's a perceived notion of actors being loaded all the time. Or if you're on TV, you get and and you can do well, but then you can have very very bare times and. It, that that can be quite scary when you've got mortgages and uh, children and 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 so um, I, I never really wanted it for myself. But then I obviously realised that within me it was kind of taking over and fermenting in a different way. But as I said, that's why I think it took me a while to say I wanted to be an act to say I wanted to be an actor and that I am an actor because on, on two levels: one, because I think it's an incredible art; two, I think it 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 requires a great it requires balls to go and choose that life. The the journey is quite um, scary at times, and 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 I was relatively quiet as a teenager. This thing about the shy man's revenge that you know it, it enables you to, ex- and and sport does that too. I think it, it it enables you to express yourself on a field of play in ways that you might not have the capacity to do that in in your own life. It, it it's a a field of play is another form, another platform in which to express yourself in the same way a stage is or or a set is, I think. Did you encounter much of that insecurity yourself? Well, as you say, you, you still feel it to a certain extent. You can never be guaranteed anything. Mm-hmm. But actual rejection, were there moments early in your career? Oh, yeah. Really, many? Oh, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. And, and <laughs> Constant? My dad, well, you know, often. And, and my dad, I remember one time I was going for play that I really wanted and I didn't get... And I was really miserable and feeling very sorry for myself. And my dad said, look, he was very stern with me. He said, if you can't take a punch, don't be a boxer. If you can't take rejection, don't be an actor. And and it was like, you're like, yeah, it's it goes with the with the territory. And again, that's the funny thing about actors being conceived as people who are quite up themselves or big headed. And they can be. But also there are people who are constantly being judged and constantly being uh, observed and and rejected and criticised and as I say it's not a boring life. I think I'm right in saying Tom that your role in Love Hate was actually born out of a rejection. Yes I, I went for a play that I really, really in London that I really really wanted to do it was a really important play to me and I was like, Do you remember which I, play it was? Sorry Tom. Yeah it was um, Observe the Sons of Ulster Marching Toward the Somme uh, by Frank McGuinness and it's a play I saw when I was about 15 my dad brought me to see it in the Abbey and there's a, it's an astonishing astonishing play and uh, about Soldiers of the Psalm uh, and and I just remember it just it, 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 it had a huge impact on me when I was a teenager and then they were doing production in London and I thought I have to be in this and I ha- because it's and it's it's like fate it's calling me this is fate and I auditioned and I didn't get it and I was devastated and I thought oh god okay I'll never get to do this play and 
I got to do another play which led to my audition for Love Hate and if I'd done if I'd gotten the part in that initial play I wouldn't have been available to do Love Hate in the first place so it's that thing of uh, sometimes if you don't get jobs it works out in different it, in different ways and 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 that's why sometimes having a strategic plan a career plan for actors can sometimes be not always the best idea sometimes things take their own shape and you've got to leave it up to the fates i mm. suppose the good news is that we don't have to wait until the Avengers to see Tom on the big screen again. Your next movie is out in just a few weeks. It's called Maze, and it concerns the IRA prison break of 1983. Here's some news coverage of the escape from around the world at that time. Mass escape from the maze. A prison officer killed more than 20 Republicans on the run. Une vingtaine de prisonniers se sont échappés de la prison de haute sécurité. Margaret Thatcher is speaking at the end there about what was the biggest breakout ever in Britain or Ireland, the biggest apparently in Europe since World War II. 38 IRA prisoners escaped from what was thought to be one of the most secure institutions in the world. Now you play IRA man Larry Marley in this movie, Tom. The background to the story is that uh, this happened two years after the hunger strikes and the Republican movement at the time was seen to be maybe a bit demoralised. The inmates in the maze had gone pretty quiet. Uh, It seems though that really they were just luring the authorities into thinking that they may have lost heart. Yeah, and I think it's interesting to read about it and on all sides how exhausted the whole place must have been by the intensity of 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 the hunger strikes and and the horror of that whole experience for i would imagine everyone just on some level in in there the ira wanted to set in motion a plan to um bring morale back up and and this was this plan to escape and you know it's interesting that 38 men got out but Larry Marley's original plan was to break like 200 300 out and that's what he wanted it was about you know the the biggest escape in 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 prison history trying to get everyone out and he was always talking about thinking big think big always think big what they realized and what you see in the film is that they realized the engineering of the maze is so elaborate and so so it was clever in a way that there was no kind of physical weakness or flaw, and that the they identified the best way was it was it was a human uh, weakness and about befriending the uh, the wardens and getting out that way. It's kind of complicated time, I guess, to make a historic or a movie about a historic event which is recent history. You know, it's not it's not like this was a century ago. There's a lot of people. Um, who were involved, who are mm. uh, still around. I mean, I can think mm. of Jerry Kelly, for instance, who yeah. uh, who shot one of the guards. And uh, I mean, the, the guards, that, that guard survived. But, you know, he's now a senior Sinn Féin politician. Um, yeah. How does the movie deal with the, the, depicting such awkward events? It doesn't shy away from it. And it presents the events as, as they happened. And, and I, again, when you get a script, you've got to be especially a script like this that that is also politically sensitive you have to be okay with its politics yourself before you sign on otherwise there's no point in doing it and and what Stephen Burke who's the writer and the director has done is present this story in all its complexity and all its conflicts and 
and make a story that's unsentimental and is uh, unsparing in its depiction of both sides. Okay, we don't have to wait too long to see that. I think it's September 22nd. People right, can go yeah. and see brilliant stuff and go and see Tom in Mays. I had a feeling we were going to love having you on as a guest, Tom, and you've been great. But if you think it was an emotional roller coaster playing Nidge in the Love Hate days, just wait until you have to compete for the honour, the ultimate honour of becoming Ireland's greatest non sports person, sports person of 2017. Coming up next on Second Captain Sunday, we're going to shine a light on this sporting life of Tom Von Lawler. Second captain, first captain, whatever. I never go home, those boys. Get in touch with us here on Second Captain Sunday by email, secondcaptains at rte.ie or tweet at secondcaptains. Owen Murphy and Ken here with the superb Tom Vaughan Lawler this morning, former star of Love Hate as Nidge and future star of the Avengers as we've uncovered today. Uh, Tom, I want you to take us back to the 1993 Leinster Schools Junior Cup first round tie in Donnybrook. It's unforgettable stuff. A 15-year-old Tom Vaughan Lawler was lining out for De La Salle Churchdown against the might of Blackrock College. Oh, God. <laughs> the, the thing about it is Wait, that well, we Tom? were not... Oh, listen. <laughs> listen, it was... I, I spent the whole match just tackling thin air. I, I touched the ball once and the ball, the time I touched the ball was to get it from when it had been kicked out for a touch for a line out and to give it to the hooker. That was the only time I touched the ball. Well, is that and really I, even a touch when it's actually yeah, no, off it's te- the field it's, of play? It's, 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 not, it's not a touch. It's not a touch. But, <laughs> the, you know, but the thing about it was, was we were, they were, the, the, the Barcelona games had been, what, 1992, right? Yeah. So, that, that was the first time the actual dream team had appeared in basketball, yes? Isn't that right? Yeah, that's yeah, right, that's Jack. right yeah. Yes. So, 93, when we played, was this the the the, the dream team um label the dream team name was now being bandied about by everyone and was applied to this black rock team and you know we had some amazing players and we had some really good coaches and we had dynamic you know runners and we had a really good team and we had a brilliant we had a, an enjoyable season and we played some good rugby but then coming up with those those guys you're just like they just it's on a different level you just go but i remember we were in the in the changing room before and we were all getting really psyched up and we sprinted out into the pitch and i think in the old days there was a narrow kind of door kind of gateway that you run to the pitch and i nearly ran straight into a pillar and but i did this kind of sidestep of the pillar and i just thought you know it would have been very embarrassing early on <laughs> to have like an early substitute before the game but it would have saved me you know, we got beaten 40, maybe 40 nil. But to put it into perspective, that was the first round. We got beaten maybe like 40 nil. They won the final by 30 points. So, you know, that's 40 points isn't too bad. But the thing is that you're what's so tough about it is that, you know, you're 15. You're on the wing catching hypothermia and just all the girls are there from the girls schools <laughs> cheering on the black rock boys and you're a bit like this is just so embarrassing it was so embarrassing i was awful but but you know what doesn't kill you makes you stronger and it was it was an it was an experience and i'm i'm, I'm thankful for it you say it was described as the dream team at the time uh, i think oh. the players involved like so leo cullen who's currently Leinster coach. I, I, leo cullen i remember leo cullen uh I went, I joined, stupidly joined a rook maybe or a mall or something. And I just remember this tall blonde kid just running through me and just stepping over me and just, I was like, oh, okay. It was, you know, that was, that was my meeting with Leo Cullen. Yeah, Leo Cullen strikes me as the sort of guy who probably looked 35 when he was 18. Yeah, no, absolutely. I I, I think that's absolutely true. 15, Murphy. This is Junior Cup. Yeah. Yeah, Junior Cup. Yeah, Junior Cup. And he might actually look 
35 in 15 years' time as well. That might I'm just sure. be how Leo <laughs> Cullen will faces. look for yeah, it. Yeah. He's got one of those faces. Yeah. It sounds like, yeah, you're super positive. We had Blind Boy Boat Club on from Rubber Bandits a couple of weeks ago and he had an awful time. Yeah. He went very much yeah. to a rugby school in Limerick and was way more into, well, was way more in, well, wasn't into rugby at all and was uh, into art and music and this kind of stuff. Yeah. And he found himself very alienated. You, you seem to have a foot in both camps, maybe. Well, I, 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 maybe it's again about being an actor. I think, being, as I say, I was a bit, maybe a bit of a quiet kid, but being on a football pitch or rugby pitch allowed me to express myself and to, you know, within rules, be aggressive. I suppose, you know, especially in sport like rugby, and and be committed and be. Um, and engage in something and have passion for something and have commitment for something. And because when I was going to school, theatre and drama and art, you know, English theatre was, plays were taught as literature, not as, not as, as drama. So you didn't have that same kind of outlet that schools say in England have, where that culture is very much, has always been there for a long, long time. And so sport was an outlet in which to express yourself. And that was, I'm really thankful for that. And I, and I, and I loved it. Did you go on to compete at any sport in college? Yes, I. My dad is a huge boxing fan, and I was watched a lot of boxing with my dad, and I th- and I remember at Freshers' Week there was the boxing club, and I thought, hey, I'll sign up for the boxing club. Is that okay. cool? Yeah. So I did a bit of training, and I threw some good shapes and had some good footwork, and from watching a lot of boxing, I think I had pretty good technique, and so I signed up for the colours. And we fought out in UCD, and this is like 1997, maybe? 1990, 1996. Okay. And went to UCD. It was out in UCD, but it was against UCC. And I I remember waiting. I had all the gear on, the head guy, you know, everything. And I remember waiting to go in, uh, out, and that thing about legs turning to jelly. I, 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 <laughs> I was just thinking, what am, what am I doing here? <laughs> this is t- total lunacy. Was this like so, your first fight? I mean, had you... Had you... Oh, totally. I'd okay. sparred a few times, but like, you know, literally around. But this was like the proper first fight. I was like, what am I doing? So I, I go into the ring, and the, I'd met the guy before at the weigh-in, and he was really, really nice, really lovely guy. He was like, nice to meet you know good luck and I was like yeah good luck, good luck. and so but then I like my game face on I was like okay here's time to go so I went in bing the dong dong the bell goes out I come throw a few shapes dance a bit you know just knock out a few jabs and and you know he knocks me down straight away just like a straight right in the nose I'm down the ground so I get back up I go okay okay uh, throw a few haymakers you know one or two connect but nothing serious and then another like a right hook or something and then I'm down again and then I get back up oh. and the ref goes go to your corner and I was like wait sorry which one which one's my corner <laughs> he's like the guy is waving at you over there I was like okay thank you thank you so I go over to my corner and they do the whole thing of dusting off your gloves to make sure there's you know to make sure you're still kind of with it and he's like can you continue I was like yeah hey, I'm fine fine and I go back and the, the, the my opponent's gloves are like covered in blood and I was like I must have really connected with one of those like haymakers and, then, and I looked down at my singlet and it's just red just blood everywhere I was like oh my god okay so you know a technical knockdown is in amateur is like three knockdowns in a round so I was knocked down once I was knocked down twice and this is all in the first round and then 
I was knocked down the third time, but on the third time I was knocked unconscious. So it was like a technical knockout and a proper knockout in the same round. So then I got up and I was like bleeding and kind of staggering around. And the ref was really sweet. He said, you know, there's no losers. People, men, being you know, step into the ring. There's no losers. So I was like, yeah, okay. And then I went into the shower and I was like, couldn't close my mouth properly. And I was like, oh my God, this is so embarrassing. And, I, and again, I, when I went out and I sat, my sister was like 10 at the time. And she was just sitting there laughing, going, you idiot. <laughs> and she still brings it up, she still brings it up from time to time. She goes, oh, that is so time you were boxing. That is, yeah, that was my family, my family totally, you know, uh, they were like so supportive, but also, you know, going, come on, like what a plonker. So it was, did, but it was, again, a lot of fun and a lot, and another experience. It sounds I, I like think. the most traumatic experience for your 10 year old sister, leaving you aside no, entirely, she, surely. Yeah, she loved it. No, she loved it. Uh, lo- you know, just, just thought it was just so funny. Just me thinking I might be a boxer. And you know what? I was pro- good at the footwork, great at the footwork. Great at throwing shapes, great at looking the part. The actual boxing bit, mm. I wasn't so good at. I'm going to say we should reserve some praise. You, you, you seem to be saying that the referee was quite nice at the end. I'm thinking maybe the ref could have stepped in after the second knockdown and thought, <laughs> yes, this, this, I think, fu- this future superstar of acting has had enough here. <laughs> well, I think he was like, you know, I, I was enthusiastic. Again, I was very enthusiastic. So he, he was rewarding my enthusiasm with giving me another chance. So he was like, you know, okay, let's, let's see... Let's see how you get on here in this last bit. But yeah, it was it didn't end well. So and that was the beginning and the end of my boxing career. It sounds like you'd obviously had this romantic kind of idea of boxing, oh, I guess. Yeah, all oh, the, When We Were Kings, Foreman Ali, oh, all this kind all of that stuff. All that stuff. Yeah. Ali, all that Rumble in the Jungle, Thriller Manila, all that stuff. My dad regaling me with all these stories about these great, iconic, romantic boxers. I thought, I'm going to contribute to that story. I'm going to go out and write my little piece in the history of boxing <laughs> <laughs> in UCD. Uh, getting, you know, knocked unconscious. Listen, it's all part of your journey. There is kind of a recurring theme here of extreme violence against you and your teammates. No, it is. It is. I know. I'm I'm realising that I'm, you know, but but these, again, they've fed me well. Well, quite a canon of work you've put together in the sporting field. Tom, give us a highlight. We need to push you for a highlight of your sporting career. This is my highlight. My highlight was I was a big Liverpool fan um, in the 80s and I, I was kind of avid in my reading of match magazine and shoot magazine and my mom was so sweet she used to i used to regale her with statistics of you know players uh, you know coventry versus nottingham forest Mm -hmm. and you know regale her with like different player the left backs you know he's got eight out of ten rating but he was you know and all this kind of stuff my mom was very sweet she was wow that's amazing i was like yeah and so shoot had and maybe matched it too i don't know but shoot definitely had this um you know, fan letter page where you could write in a letter. And I was a big John Aldridge fan. And um, I, I, Ian Rush had gone to Juventus and then Juventus, uh, uh, Liverpool had bought him back. And because Liverpool had Peter Beardsley and had John Barnes, you know, the, 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 there was suggestion and the thoughts that Aldridge would be sidelined. And I was, you know, outraged at this. And I, and I thought I'm going to write a letter so I wrote a letter to Shoot magazine <laughs> complaining about um, the sidelining of uh, John Aldridge. And I remember very clearly that the sub-editor put in this headline, Rush in Reserve. That was my um, my sub-editor's headline. Yeah, yeah really yeah. nice. And, 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 I, and, and, I, and so I, that was 
published and I got a shoot t-shirt, a white t-shirt with like a, a, a black um, shoot um, insignia on the front. And I was so proud of it because, you know, it was a t-shirt from England, from a magazine in England. So I was just like wearing it around all the time. But again, on a kind of a more profound, or on a kind of a deeper level, it's kind of, you go, I was like maybe 11, 12, and you go, wow, someone hears me or someone sees me and not only outside my family outside this country there's someone out there who read something i wrote and they went yeah let's put this kid's um opinion in here and i was like it really kind of fed me and, and i and i've kept it for years and every time i'd feel a bit like rubbish and i go hey listen i got a, a shoot t-shirt out of this three-line argument so i was like really i was really chuffed and and it was a really inspiring uh thing even though it was kind of something small it was kind of a, it was a nice kind of victory do you still have the magazine no, I don't. I don't oh. know where it is. Oh, I know. I don't know. I know. It's a shame. I don't know. I, I had. I, you know, after I, I kind of fell out of love with football and, and kind of went into reading and and kind of abandoned my, footballing, obsession. You became a, a shoot and match snob by the sounds of things. Yeah. Yeah. No. Absolutely. I probably did. And and I, and I was such an a, such an avid follower. And then I just kind of. And now I'm kind of an amateur fan and I quite enjoy it. I enjoy watching football for the kind of pantomime nature of the whole thing. And and I really genuinely, I love the Second Captain's podcast because I love the kind of detailed, in-depth um, analysis. And I find that really fascinating people's observations and um, dissecting of, of things because that really that really feeds into something from when I was a kid but as a fan I, I enjoy it I enjoy the pantomime and the kind of nonsense of it like like you were talking about in the show about Mourinho doing that hair thing for Conte and calling him that name yeah. it's like you know these are adult men it's <laughs> the most ridiculous thing I mean it is I just I love that these grown men behave like this and especially someone like Mourinho, who just makes me laugh so much. Sounds I just like, think he's hilarious. Sounds like somebody's buttering us up here. I think he knows what's no. coming. <laughs> oh, God. You've go just on, earned yourself some extra points, yeah, Thomas. You might have some. Oh, yes. Oh, my God. Sandra <laughs> gets you, you everywhere. You have, yes, because you had the T-shirt. Your second captain's T-shirt turned up in Catastrophe, right? Yes, it's certainly. Yeah, more than one, yeah, yeah, more than one occasion. Oh yeah. my god! Listen, and she looks—it looks so sexy wearing it, doesn't she? You're like, oh my god! It's like, it's like the best advertisement for your show ever. It's like, oh my god, Sharon Horn is like sexy, brilliant woman. You're like, wow. well, if if you have she wears it in bed as well, she wears it in bed. Uh, Thomas like, yeah. probably so should mention at this point that our producer Mark Horgan is Sharon Horgan's sister, and he's oh, staring at me. Is, 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 is her brother? I should say. Yeah. What? He's he's Shane Horgan's brother and Sharon. That Horgan? is true. And points are now being deducted as we speak. Yeah. <laughs> easy come, easy no, go, Tom, I'm afraid. Me. Yeah. Oh no, I'm so <laughs> Well, you know how we should have known? That that grey head of hair he has. Oh, mm. so true. Well, Points put back amazing. on again. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. If you can get a second captain's t shirt into uh, the, the next Avengers movie, the movie <laughs> yeah. forget this whole story incident. I'll wander past camera in one. I'll try and get Robert Denny Jr. in one. That would be even better. <laughs> Alright, let's do this, Tom. We've loved having you on this morning. It all counts for nothing though if you fail to earn an impressive score. So let us rank this sporting life of Tom Von Lawler. You don't understand, I could have had class. We don't have stars in this game, Mrs. Weaver. What do you have then? People like me, I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. I'm going to leave you in the capable hands of our 2017 This Sporting Life Grand Marshal, Kieran Murphy. Murph. 
Uh, okay, Tom, here it comes. The moment of Come truth. On. I've been given the onerous task of assessing your all-time sports highlight, <laughs> your sports knowledge, and I must now decide if you belong with the Top Guns or the also-rans. Dorothy Cross on 88 points is our leader. Blind Boy from the Rubber Bandits is bottom on 42 points. Mid-table Ooh. respectability is anything in the mid-70s. So let's do this. Your all-time sports highlight is too easy, really. Uh, getting a letter of any sort printed in Shoot magazine is a dream fulfilled for any young Irish pre-teen in the 1980s. That it could be such a cogently argued, compellingly written think piece is really just a bonus. And because in the end, the facts bore you out. John Alder Aldridge outscored Ian Goldrush Rush in the 88-89 season with 34 goals in all competi- competitions. If only Kenny Douglas should listen to you and not sold Aldo off to Real Sociedad at the start of the following season. A season which, you know, Liverpool did win the League and Cup double, but that's neither here nor there. I, I have to say that you've impressed me with the breadth of your sporting interest, be it rugby, soccer, marathons, boxing. You're an avowed student of all forms of physical and competitive expression, so my congratulations to you. I have one further question for you now, and uh, yes. that is this, Tom. If you were mm-hmm. to stare in the eponymous lead role of the John Aldridge biopic, Aldo, who would yes. play your nemesis in Gold Rush Rush? Take as long as you need. Great question. I would pick up the phone and I would say, get me Mr. James Franco. <laughs> oh, that is a good call, actually. Well, isn't he? He knows yeah. his way around the biopic as well. So, yeah. you know, I think he'd be he'd do the accent. He'd be amazing. Could, a man, amazing. Play, could a man play Alan Ginsberg and Ian Rush in the course of I'm one sure. uh, acting listen, career? That is quite something. I'm sure. I'm sure. Okay, so uh, thank you for your honesty. Uh, it's been a thank real you. treat. You're obviously nowhere near top spot, of course. Don't be daft, Tom. Oh. But that hugely impressive marathon time means that you have scored 83 points for nice. mid-table respectability med flesh. Never I'm in danger of last place, never challenging for the top spot. You are, in fact, West Bromwich Albion. So, yeah. Tom von Luller, this has been This Morning Life. Thank you so much. Listen, a round of applause, please, folks, for the amazing, the wonderful Tom von Luller. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you. by Van Morrison and them from 1965. You're listening to Second Captain Sunday and I think we've established beyond a reasonable doubt that Tom Vaughan Lawler is an extremely nice fella. And I'm not just saying that because he complimented our podcast. Or from Ken. Tom is... Going, hurt, yeah. No, it certainly doesn't hurt. <laughs> I'm not saying that. I'm not saying it's to- it's not a factor. But Tom is the second guest this series who has endured a beating in the boxing ring. Poor Pat Short had a similar tale of woe a few weeks back. Mm. He's certainly the first to have his work published in Shoot magazine, though. If you're not familiar with that, with that esteemed publication, by the way, the word Shoot in the title has an exclamation mark at the end of it. Exclamation point. So you know you're dealing with a really prestigious title there. Hmm. Just like The Economist. And, uh... <laughs> hello. Fair. Yeah, no, I don't think that's how it goes. Just hello. I, th- I think hello is hello basically... Hello and the only shoot one. are the two. Yeah. Murphy's All-Ireland semi-final day. Kerry versus Mayo. And as you can imagine, on uh, much of the build-up has centred around Kerry people writing columns saying that they'll be up against it this week. <laughs> uh, and I have to say that uh, I read an absolutely brilliant blog post by a fellow called David Byrne uh, at Delta Bravo 64 to give you his uh, Twitter name. Uh, last week he wrote a brilliant one about how to write a Jim McGuinness article in the style of Jim McGuinness's Irish Times comms. Uh, this week he's outdone himself by giving us a four-point plan on how to write a column like a former Kerry footballer. <laughs> so this is point four. Finally, to really evoke and reinforce the unique brand that is Kerry football, you must include a story about either of these two greats, Mick O'Dwyer 
or Podi O'Shea. One golden rule here, which can't be broken, is to never use their surnames. And then we're given a sample of the sort of anecdote he's talking about. Go on. I'll never forget the time one of the lads from the under-21s was having a tough old time but with a girl, so he flew to Tierra del Fuego to get away from it all. He was sitting in his tent on the slope of an ice-crusted mountain, having just cracked open a bottle of Corona, when the zip flew down on the tent door. And who stuck his head in? <laughs> Only the bowled Miko. Startled, the young lad dropped the beer bottle, to which Miko said, with sloppy hands like that, I can't be picking you for the weekend, and sauntered off down the mountain into the icy Chilean night. <laughs> which, uh, you know, it's, it's important though not to take any of this pre-match stuff too seriously. I assume talking down their chances is one of the points. In yeah, oh, as well. well, oh yeah, of course. It's kind of the, set, the central... Of course, feeling sorry plan. for Cork, yeah. uh, throwing some shade on Dubliners. It's, is, it's, it, yeah, is it worth turning up today to play the Might of Mayo? That kind of thing. I, I think, so uh, I think uh, this whole thing reaches apogee this summer when uh, Darrow Shea tried to convince people that Cork were going to beat Kerry in the Munster final, mm-hmm. having uh, barely scraped by Waterford and uh, Tipperary. But uh, yeah, looks set to be a classic today anyway. Mayo for Samkin? I doubt it, Owen. I very much doubt it. Dublin for Sam. We'll leave it there, I think, for this morning and pick it up next Sunday at 10am for our last show of the current series, believe it or not. We're going to go out with a bang. Our guest will be one of our favourite broadcasters in the world, Claire Balding. You can check us out during the week on secondcaptains.com, broadcasting daily from our own studios. Marion Fanukin is up next. Mark Horgan and Simon Hick produce. Conor Doherty researched. Thanks, Murph. Thank you, Owen. Thanks very much, Ken. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Karen. Thanks for listening and enjoy your Sunday. Second cap and first cap and whatever.